This yes. is hell. Daylight savings time is stupid. And this is hell on our most recent recent show here at thisishell.com during our world broadcast premiere of This Is Hell, which happens every Saturday morning on Chicago's Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM. We had a conversation with Nick Buxton, co-author of the Transnational Institute report, Global Climate Wall, How the World's Wealthiest Nations Prioritize Borders Over Climate Action. That report states seven of the biggest emitters of greenhouse gases, the United States, Germany, Japan, the UK, Canada, France, Australia, collectively spend spent at least twice as much on border and immigration enforcement, on security, as on climate finance between 2013 and 2018. Canada spent 15 times more, Australia 13 times more, the U.S. almost 11 times more, and the U.K. nearly two times more. What all this amounts to is that every time a refugee or migrant tries to cross the U.S.-Mexico border or U.S.-funded border controls elsewhere, such as the Mexican border with Guatemala, or tries to cross into the EU from countries such as Afghanistan, Liberia, Senegal, Syria, or Sudan, countries least responsible for climate change, they are confronted with the walls and guns of the countries with the largest historic emissions. In 2020, unusually intense and prolonged rainy seasons in sub-Saharan Africa, including South Sudan, prompted nearly 4.3 million people to be displaced in the region. And what was promised by the wealthiest, most greenhouse gas-emitting nations to those suffering the most from climate change, despite causing the least greenhouse gas emissions, those promises never went fulfilled. In fact, those promises of grants to help with costs in fighting climate change were turned into loans, making those poor nations even more vulnerable and exploitable by the wealthy. With this process of building walls instead of fighting climate change, instead of helping those who are forced to migrate due to global warming, None of this is actually anything new. The same process actually dates back to colonialism and the proxy leaders colonial empires left behind. It is readily visible in the history of Sudan, Darfur, and what our guest today describes as a constant civil war. We'll learn what the region can teach us about living in a world of climate change and the migration it will cause and has already caused for decades when we speak in a few minutes with journalist and researcher Jerome Tubiana, who wrote the Baffler magazine article Land of Threat, Global Migration in Darfur. Jerome specializes in the Horn of Africa and the Sahara. He has written for Foreign Affairs, London Review of Books, and The Nation and is the author of the graphic novel Guantanamo Kid, The True Story of Mohammed El Garani. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. It's Monday, so producing is Jess Lipka. Jess, anything new about you? I'm doing good. Um, we had some people over this weekend to watch the Canelo Plant fight. That was that was great. It was great hosting. That's was that UFC? No, 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 no. That was super middleweight boxing. Oh, no kidding. I saw a headline about it in the paper. I never got around to reading about it. So how was the fight? I was good. It was a good fight. A lot better than I expected. Did you gamble on it? Um, small amounts. <laughs> the the pay the pay per view cost. <laughs> <laughs> so did you make your money back? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of how it always works out. I realized something this weekend after taking all the necessary precautions over the past 20 months to protect myself from the coronavirus, locking myself away from the rest of humanity other than my girlfriend, and doing everything we can to stay more than an arm's length away from everybody else. 
I think I've forgotten how to live in the city. The reason I live here is because my vision isn't good enough to drive a car safely, and it's pretty iffy riding a bike, which means I depend on mass transit, and I don't get around that great on mass transit because I'm totally colorblind. We have a color-coded system here in the city. Jesus. I also live here because of the culture, the wide variety of food, the museums, the architecture, the live entertainment, blah, 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 all the things I would miss if I were moved to, let's say, a more rural setting. The combination of the two should mean that every weekend I should be going out and taking advantage of what is on offer here in Chicago, but after staying indoors in the same apartment for well over a year and a half, I really don't remember how to live in the city. Making things worse, I conveniently live a block from where I do this show, which means I never really have the need to go outside my one-block bubble, and that bubble's about to burst. All that said, complaining about not being able to enjoy the city while around the world the virus is surging in places that do not have access to the vaccines, let alone the hospital care necessary to treat those who are suffering from coronavirus. When I realize all of that, I suddenly think realize that all these complaints reek of privilege. So I'm hoping that when I am safe from the virus, as well as being safe from my guilt about being safe from the virus, I'm hoping that when that time comes, I will remember how to enjoy the world outside my home. But more importantly than forgetting what it's like to live in a city while living in a city, Jess, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is... In this house, we believe what? <laughs> God, I hate those signs. In this house, we believe what? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. You can find it at our website right now when you click on support. This is hell.com. When you click on support, you can see the trucker's cap, the winter beanie, the tote bag, the t-shirt, the coffee mug, and the flash drive guide to the 21st century, in uh, which includes dozens of interviews that we've done in the 2000s. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of Wednesday's show when we are announcing this week's winner, as we do each and every week following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. Jess will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Jerome on climate migration in Darfur. Again, the question from hell is, in this house, we believe what? In this house, we believe what? And I have a feeling that Alex, who writes the question from hell, was walking around his neighborhood and seeing signs that have front lawn signs that tell pe- tell you what that house believes in. And those signs are really annoying. And I'm bet- betting they annoy Alex just as much as they annoy me. Thanks to Magnificent Me and Brett for their tithing-like commitment to This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And thanks to Neil for going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Neil writes, hope this will aid in providing a living wage plus an extra beer or two. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell and Jess has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is in the Bible. The Daily Express in London ran a story on Friday headlined archaeologists blown away by spectacular gold ring with link to biblical hangover cure. 
Writer Sebastian Ketley reports, Israeli archaeologists ex- excavating a Byzantine wine factory were blown away by the unexpected discovery of a gold ring with possible links to an ancient biblical hangover cure. The Israeli Antiquities Authority released a statement saying a spectacular gold ring set with amethyst was discovered during is- Israel Antiquities Authority excavations at the world's largest ancient wine factory in Yavna. The IAA added, In fact, gold amethyst rings were common in in the Roman world, therefore the ring may have been passed down from a wealthy person who lived in Yavna as early as the 3rd century AD. Ketley explains, But what is more interesting is the violet amethyst laid into the ring. He then cites the IAA as saying, Many virtues have been associated with this gem, including preventing hangovers, which is ironic as the ring was discovered near a Byzantine wine factory. But that's all we really get from the revered Daily Express. Meanwhile, at allthatisinteresting.com, writer Kalina Fraga points out, the very word amethyst comes from the Greek word amethystos, which means not intoxicating. Ancient Greeks, in hopes of warding off future hangovers, often wore amethyst while drinking alcohol. Sometimes they went even further and incorporated amethyst straight into their drinking glasses. That makes this week's hangover cure amethyst. That isn't ironic in any way to find a hangover cure ring at a wine factory. You would think that that's where you would find a hangover cure ring. I don't find that to be ironic in any way, and I don't think I really understand irony. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a a really stupid business model, this is hell, and if you would like to support our horrible business model that puts you before profits, subscribe to our bonus weekly Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell, which streams live at 10 a.m. on Fridays in his podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell shortly after. A few weeks ago on Patreon, I talked about stumbling upon an opinion column in a small-town newspaper that revealed rural biases by those who live in the country. The piece was headlined, Life makes sense in country, farm folk grounded amid a crazy world. The writer's point was that despite those living in rural areas living in fear on the verge of depression and dismissing any calls for equality as a fad, country folk are the most grounded and welcoming people you will ever meet, having a keen insight into everything including life and death that city folk will simply never understand. That monologue ended up being a two-parter as I followed up the next week with the ongoing debate in an impoverished rural and very conservative Michigan township over allowing short-term rental apps like Airbnb and Verbo to operate without any restrictions or limitations. A Facebook group supporting the uh, short-term rentals revealed a whole other set of biases in small-town rural America, including a dislike for democracy, support for the interests of the wealthiest, and utter disdain for the poor, and a belief that the city is full of convicts and pedophiles. Well, somehow on our most recent Patreon podcast this past Friday, that monologue expanded to a third part after I was invited to another Facebook group made up of locals in the same township that opposed Airbnb and Verbo coming to their community. In that group, I learned more about conservative rural and small-town bias, and what I learned is that the same conservative fiscal policies these voters support in the voting booth are now coming home to roost as locals are suffering from the blowback of their own political choices. But what's even worse is soon they may not have a choice as the Republican Party they support are trying to take the power away from locals to be able to say yes, no, or anything in between when it comes to outfits like Airbnb and Verbo, which sadly reminded me of how little of a choice we really have when it comes to anything from local zoning regulations to 
climate change. We also shared an interview from 15 years ago last week that now sounds pretty prescient. Back on November 4th, 2006, we spoke with diplomacy scholar Robert Farley, who at the time was an assistant professor at the Patterson School of Diplomacy and International Commerce at the University of Kentucky, where Robert is now a senior lecturer. He's also a founder and senior editor of the Lawyers, Guns, and Money blog, which you can find at LawyerGunsMoneyBlog.com. He was on to discuss his American Prospect piece that had just been posted, Still the Right War? What about Afghanistan? The column was subtitled with the question, In Light of the Iraq Debacle and the Resurgence of the Taliban, Should We Reassess the Wisdom of That Other Post-9-11 War? And were we getting grief back then for not supporting the Afghan war? Sure, it was fine to be critical of the Iraq war, but there was this kind of insistence that those opposing the Iraq war display some sort of alleged objectivity by supporting the war in Afghanistan. Supporting the war in Afghanistan was the moderate thing to do. Since that conversation, Robert's most recent book is 2020's Patents for Power, Intellectual Property Law and the Diffusion of Military Technology from the University of Chicago Press. I also mentioned how it's too bad we didn't know about Robert's book last year when it came out because it definitely sounds worthy of an interview here on the show. So shortly following last week's uh, this. Uh, Patreon podcast, we got an email from contributor Robert Ronaldo Magaldi, who writes this week in Rotten History. Ronaldo told us regarding the Patreon rebroadcast of the old interview with Robert Farley, you mentioned his most recent book, Patents for Power, published by University of Chicago Press. Ronaldo writes, guess who copy edited that manuscript? A question which is rhetorical, because the answer is... Ronaldo. Ronaldo continues, I suppose I should have mentioned this book to you, and it actually crossed my mind to do so. In the future, I'll try to be more mindful of books I write on what on that you uh, might like for the show, especially since I'm also editing stuff now for another university press. Anyway, I hope the extermination of your pad was <laughs> successful. You have my sympathies. But you can only hear what is, hopefully, the conclusion of my three-part monologue on rural bias, conservative bias, the end of choice, and the end of our planet as well, and a uh, 2006 talk on how the Afghan war was never the right war by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. And in case you are wondering, my girlfriend and I still have not yet completely recovered from roaches and exterminators. We had to tear the place apart so the exterminators could spray their poison in all the places cockroaches might be attracted to, but as we put stuff back where it goes, we're realizing we have far too much stuff and we're suddenly and thankfully decluttering, which is great, but very time consuming. And on the Patreon podcast, I also share what we've unearthed in our home, including a magazine from 2005 warning about the next pandemic and another magazine from 2010 with a cover story about Alec Baldwin and his misfires. Coming up, climate migration in Darfur. We'll also have this week in Rotten History some of your answers to this week's question from hell. Who is going to be on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell? And we'll tell you how you can contribute to This Is Hell. Not just through clicking on the support button, but in other ways as well. Live from the United States where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. 
Until very recently, when migration caused by climate change was discussed in the establishment news media, it was only mentioned as something that might happen in the far too distant future, or maybe not so far off, but definitely in the future. However, people being forced to flee their homes due to uh, global warming isn't something that just started with Rohingya and Myanmar in 2019 or contributing to the conditions that led to the Syrian war, Syrian civil war, or the Arab Spring. The people in Sudan and Darfur have been experiencing such forced displacement for decades, and their experience can teach the world a lot about the more massive migrations climate change is about to cause. Here to help us get a better understanding of migration due to extreme weather and the history of Sudan and Darfur, journalist and researcher Jerome Tubiana wrote the Baffler magazine article, Land of Thirst, Climate Migration and Darfur. Welcome to This Is Hell, Jerome. Hello, Chuck. It's great to have you on the show. This is a fascinating piece because a lot of people right now are discussing Sudan due to the uh, military coup that overthrew the dictatorship there. But there's not a lot of discussion on climate change or climate migration. And even when uh, the Darfur civil war was raging far more in the recent past, now climate change isn't something that was discussed very often. So let's get a better understanding of that civil war and then how it applies to climate change. You write how you first visited Sudan in 2004 when the war in Darfur was just over a year old. Flying to Niala, the capital of South Darfur state, I began reporting on the mass atrocities committed by Omar al-Bashir's pro-Arab junta against non-Arab communities accused of supporting a small rebellion. Yet, if, as I had been told, the conflict was about Arabs killing black Africans, Niala uh, painted a more complex picture. It was a stunning melting pot of people, some considered indigenous, others who traced their ancestry back to centuries-old kingdoms, others still seen as newcomers, both Arabs, some invisible, their skin as dark as anyone's, and non-Arab. So how was Arab or non-Arab being determined when it comes to being a target of violence by the al-Bashir uh, government or not being a target? Because as we've discussed on this show during uh, antebellum times within the American South, uh, an African-American who would go from one community to the next may be determined to be uh, worthy of being enslaved or not being worthy of being enslaved, depending on how they were viewed when it comes to their race. So how was Arab or non-Arab being determined when it comes to being a target of violence by the al-Bashir government? Right. Well, that's a good question. But actually, people knew each other, uh, people who are actually already quietly segregated and, and the war made it very quickly much more segregated. But in any case, yeah, I mean, we're talking about mass crimes, we're talking about organized crimes. Uh, it was labeled a genocide and it actually means it entails some organization, some preparation. And uh, well, the, the villages that were targeted, they were often targeted by their neighbors. Um, and actually, even if people, it's, it's the case in many mass crimes or genocide, I mean, like that people are actually killed and targeted by the neighbors. It happened in Rwanda as well. So this is how it worked, because in Sudan, the, the crimes were made by, um, by by local militias, by Arab militias, who actually targeted their, their non-Arab neighbors that they knew sometimes very well. Sometimes they had had conflicts with them, sometimes not. Uh, sometimes had been good friends. Sometimes they had intermarried. Some families were were torn apart, like in many many conflicts, like in like in Bosnia, like in Rwanda. It happened too. Uh, and actually, what, what what was amazing is that that most of those people's victims and killers were also all very poor, and many of them on both sides 
had been actually uh, displaced uh, by by climate change, by man-made climate change, by earlier droughts and, and famines and so on. How you mentioned uh, Bosnia? How and just using that as an, as an example, how sustainable do you think this kind of balkanization that started in the 1990s, where there is increased segregation and increased nationalism, how sustainable is that in the face of climate change? Well, it's not. But there's been there's been really, I mean, borders have been have become stronger externally, as as you mentioned, walls really literally built uh, under under the North influence, under the global North influence, but also internally as well. But people have always moved and and intermarried more than we believe, and more that more than the the, the current Sudanese actually do, do believe. Uh, even some some. Some Sudanese nowadays. I mean, we're talking about countries where, where most of the population is pretty young. Don't know how much their history has been, has been uh, mixing people, has been an history of of movements, of of mixity, of ethnic mixity, and and so on. So that's that's actually being lost in in many places. It's certainly been lost in, in the ex Yugoslavia, but it's also being lost elsewhere as well. But it's just that we don't really realize it. And I was reading that there is a, correct me if I'm wrong, a 700-kilometer-long wall between Sudan and Kenya that is being established. How aware do you think the world is of the expansion of walls nearly everywhere, including in places like Sudan and Darfur? There are are actually, I don't think the world is aware. I'm not really myself aware of how many walls are actually currently being built uh, across the borders in the Sahara. And those borders are straight lines, and actually those walls, we are, I, I believe, many of them will actually be rather useless. Uh, there are militarized walls. There are, there are sometimes solid walls. Sometimes they're made of sand, literally and and figuratively, and uh, and sometimes they are they are actually just administrative walls. But in any case, uh, in in places where you have people who are essentially cross borders and, and cross border people and borders are artificial, you you people will find ways to cross border. It will just make uh, movements much more painful and, and dangerous, and it will make uh, people moving people on the move much more uh, suffering to exploitation and abuses. That's for sure, but it will not prevent them to move. And it's what we're seeing now. I'm also working, incidentally. Uh, on migration uh, across Libya for for Doctors Without Borders. Uh, And we have programs in Libya and we see people coming, but the difference is they increasingly come in very bad shape. Uh, Whether they come from economic, uh, they are moved by economic uh, poverty, whether they they come from political reasons, fleeing dictatorships, fleeing wars, or fleeing climate, and very often there is not a, there is not just one criteria. People move for many reasons. Uh, one individual can move for many reasons inside his own country, like it's happening a lot in Darfur, or externally across borders. But still, they people inc- incredibly manage to to cross those borders, even when there is a solid wall. Why do you think those walls are going to prove themselves useless? Because if they are going to prove themselves useless, that would suggest that this is a waste of resources. Why waste resources on useless walls? Well, it's probably not a waste of resources for for the the, the private companies who are making security companies in in the north 
while making profit out of them. Like clearly a lot of the money that is invested in, in the global south by the global north uh, for development is aiming at uh, uh, fighting migration, at curbing migration. And a lot of that money is actually going to the global south just to go back to those companies in the global north. So in that sense, it's probably not lost for anyone, but it's useless in the sense it will uh, actually not, uh, some walls have been rather successful, I would say, to be a bit more somehow pessimistic, like typically the, the wall, the figurative wall, the, uh, the administrative wall that Europe has been building across the Mediterranean Sea has been rather efficient in terms of numbers. Definitely less people have been crossing the Mediterranean from Africa to Europe, whether they are economic, political, refugees, uh, economic migrants, climate migrants, doesn't really matter. They've been less to cross because it's been much more dangerous uh, because the, the European Union actually very specifically has been paying uh, Libyan militias, uh, rehatted as the Libyan Coast Guard or other names as well to, to block migrants. And uh, that has made the migrants' life much more difficult. Many more has been have been returned to Libya. But this means Europe and uh, European citizens have been uh, involuntarily complicit of, of abuses committed on the Libyan soil, the first of which is actually detention, because most of those migrants returned to Libya are actually detained. But then uh, another consequence has been more people have been dying at sea, not more in actual number, but more in proportion of those who actually try to cross. And that's uh, also a shame and a black spot on on Europe's principles. But this is happening at everywhere where, where the global north is trying to build a, 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 a wall uh, against migrants. It's, it's happening, as you know, uh, at the US-Mexico border. It's happening also in Australia more remotely, and it's happening in the Mediterranean Sea, and in, in many more places as well that we, we, we don't necessarily see. Yeah, that's happening. I want to uh, read a short excerpt from your article in order for people to have a little bit more of a context of what is happening within Sudan and Darfur. You write that perhaps no community had a more dramatic story than the Zargawa, a uh, non-Arab tribe, originally from Dar Zagawa in the far north of Darfur. They had gradually migrated south, fleeing drought. Beginning in the 1970s, thousands of Zagawa uh, shifted some 600 miles south. Arab pastoralists also traveled along the same route, but while the migration of most Arab tribes was haphazard, the initial Zagawa migration was a planned response to worsening droughts. And you point out the contrasting stories of Arab and Zagawa resettlement offer a stark parable about climate migration. While one violently set upon locals in South Darfur, that would be the Arabs that came alongside the Zagawa, the other tried to coexist peacefully with them and to their mutual benefit. By recent World Bank estimates, at least 216 million people, including 86 million in sub-Sahara Africa, could have to leave their ancestral lands and migrate within state borders by 2050. As larger swaths of the earth grow uninhabitable, much depends on which of these two models communities will adopt. So those two models are fleeing climate change in a haphazard fashion, lashing out violently at those who live where you migrate, or planning your migration and working with the people who live in the area where you have migrated to. Does it all come down to preparedness? Without planning, does fleeing climate change become violent? Do we need a peaceful plan now for climate change-induced migration as soon as possible? Somehow, I mean, human beings are good to adapt, and uh, you mentioned communities, but it 
will also depend very much on governments, of course. In Sudan, uh, you have the case of a government who was in conflict with with many of its communities. So the, the response, a good response was was anywhere not possible and it, it led to dramatic conflicts. But what, what happened, of course, I mean, actually Jafar has, has, has been a, a well-studied case of uh, on of droughts of successive droughts of uh, of um, of climate change, even before the world was was coined in the 1980s when there was a big drought in the cell, Darfur was well studied, and there was a surprise, is that much uh, fewer people died than what was expected, and this was because people uh, adapted well, and moved south within their own country. Some moved 1,000 kilometers south, so they had completely to change their way of life. But really, what at, the, at this time, there was a relative uh, entente between uh, the Sudanese government and some of the Darfur elites. Uh, so we knew it was uh, climate change. Maybe at this time, we didn't call it climate change. We call it just drought and famine. We knew it was man-made already. I mean, in the 1990s, it was already clear that it, uh, all this... Uh, Sahel big droughts were an effect of uh, man-made climate change. It was mentioned by Al Gore. It was mentioned by others as well, by, by scientists as well. Maybe just they were less believed at the time. Maybe they were less listened to by the global audience. Maybe there were more uh, other researchers contradicting them, possibly because they were receiving some money from oil companies. But anyway, it was well known. What was maybe less known, the only thing that may I may have discovered was that some elites in Darfur, which were among the very few, the, uh, a handful of people who, from that generation, the generation born uh, uh, before independence of Sudan in 1956, that first educated generation, uh, that a handful of people, they had both the local culture and the development culture, the modern developmentalist culture, the Western culture, and they knew that it would be better to move uh, uh, a little bit ahead of the looming drought. They knew the drought was coming. They had experienced past droughts. They knew it was aggravating and they knew it was better to move. So they organized the movement. One of them was a water engineer. The other was a military officer. They knew who to talk to in, in, the, in, the, in the capital, in Khartoum, in the center of power. They got their permission to move. They found empty land. They managed to have good relations with local people and they adapted well until... Several decades later, the government decided it was better if, the, if those people could be trapped into conflict. Then other people, which moved much more impoverished, uh, much more uh, reactively to the drought, were Arab nomads. And those, unfortunately, were also trapped into conflict, but rather differently. They were recruited by the former regime, by the regime of dictator, Islamist dictator Omar al-Bashir, and they were enlisted into those militias who are known uh, as, who are still known as the Janjaweed, and who started to slaughter their, their non-Arab neighbors. Incidentally, and I'm thinking to the to the current situation in Sudan, of course, because somehow it's a bit, it looks like a bit untimely to talk about climate change while, while, while there is a coup on, ongoing, but it's maybe not that untimely. One of the leaders of the coup, who is called Hemeti, and is now the, the biggest leader of those Janjaweed militias, and the number two of the Sudanese uh, current authorities, the main supporter of the coup, was himself a climate uh, displaced, him and his community. So that's like, actually, that's, I think, shedding a uh, quite tragic and but important light on what's 
on even the current situation today. And even in Darfur itself, you have now a lot of those uh, climate-displaced communities who keep fighting each other, but are also mobilizing across ethnic lines uh, to, to against that military coup, because many people, many of the young generation in, in, in Sudan are actually mobilized against that coup because they want democracy as well. They don't only want a safe environment to live in, they also want that, but they also want freedom. So why did the Sudanese government want to trap these different groups in conflict? Was this just a, a colonial process, if you will, of divide and conquer? It's it's a post-colonial process, definitely, of, of divide and rule. And in countries, in very big African countries like Sudan or Ethiopia or others, there's been a process of internal colonization, that, which has been or not supported by, by colonial authorities, uh, before they left and after they left. But it's the case that in Sudan, uh, the colonial authorities uh, handed over the, the central power to minorities from the, from the geographic center, from the Nile Valley. And those have been trying to rule uh, other, other parts of the Sudan, uh, which are known as the peripheries. Darfur is one, but ironically, some of those parts of the Sudan uh, had been former states. They had been pre-colonial state. For instance, Darfur had been an old sultanate since the 17th century until the, the, the British came and, and conquered it. And since then, there's been this very interesting and important conflict between a, a very centralized, if I can say, a very centralized center in Sudan with a small number and minority of of tribes and even families monopolizing the power since more than 60 or 70 years. Mm -hmm. And players from the peripheries attempted to be recognized as, as full citizens by different uh, strategies, sometimes violence, sometimes nonviolence, uh, sometimes more or less legitimate as well, sometimes a, a little bit, some strategies were clearly counterproductive, but those were ultimately strategies uh, at, at getting their share in, in a country in which they were not recognized as full citizens. So to what degree did colonialism ever end in Sudan? How different was the Arabized hegemony over Sudan from British colonial rule? Is it just the continuation of the same? I would say very much. And there is a peculiarity in Sudan is that Sudan was not a, purely a British colony. It was an Anglo-Egyptian colony. But because the, because the Brits uh, withdrew rather brutally, unlike, for instance, the French in other parts of uh, Africa, uh, today the, the Sudanese seem to have a, a rather idealized good, including the Darfuris, good memory of the British colonization. Uh, the, the, the historiography of, of the colonization in Sudan is a, is a rather positive one, but I believe the facts historical facts could be a bit different. I mean, it was sometimes violent. For instance, that Darfur Sultanate, uh, uh, whose Sultan was killed by the British, was murdered by the British, was clearly uh, conquered violently by, by the Anglo-Egyptian colonizers. So, and I would say it never recovered to some extent. It was a center who, uh, the day it was colonized, became a very marginalized periphery. So do you think that colonial legacy will continue as long as 
Sudan is governed by the same borders that British imperial rule imposed upon Sudan? Well, Sudan actually, and it's a kind of unique example in, in Africa, those borders already uh, cracked because South Sudan became independent in 2001. So it was a major loss uh, for, for Sudan. It was, I would say it was unfortunate. There would have been another option, which would have been to, to preserve Sudan unity. And, and the slogan at the time was to make unity attractive for the South Sudanese. But I would say there was no desire for anyone from from anyone ruling, whether in the south or in the north, to 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 remain united. Maybe in the south there was a strong sense of grievance and, and even revenge that made separation inevitable. But in the north there was that uh, Islamic uh, military regime from Omar al Bashir, who deeply believed that it would not be possible to coexist with uh, those people in the South that clearly they did consider as, as savages. But uh, Darfur was different because Darfuris are Muslims and there was, a, there was a strong will not to lose them still now. And so far the Darfuri rebellion has not been uh, opting very much, uh, unlike other rebellions in other parts of the country, for the, the possibility, the option of self-determination. Well, it could still be on the table, but I, I don't think it would be that good a solution given the path, the very violent path that South Sudan has taken since it became independent. Unfortunately, the, the, it's not that easy for any country to, after, after a war and after uh, experiencing uh, strong rebel insurgencies to, to uh, from the day, from one day to the next to become a, a free democracy. It takes a lot of time and it's not easy. You point out that insurgencies began in southern Sudan even before independence in 1956. They soon spread through large swaths of the east and the west of the country, which were historically neglected by the center. Civil war has been a constant, mainly in the south, interrupted now and then by unimplemented peace agreements, which mostly allow belligerents to prepare for the next round of fighting. If Sudan is still in that constant war, where does Sudan find itself today, now along that timeline of nonstop war interrupted by unimplemented peace plans while prep- preparing for the next round of fighting, especially in light of the military coup in Sudan? Uh, where do you think that Sudan finds itself in that timeline today? In the last two years, the, there was that military-civilian negotiated transition that was full of hope. There was also a peace agreement, which has remained largely unimplemented, but there was more political will to implement it than, than ever before. I mean, in the past, there, 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 were, there were more than 40 successive peace agreements signed in Sudan over a few decades. I mean, maybe an, an average of at some point of, of five peace agreements a year, it's some small, other, others bigger, but it was just a nonsense. So there was a, a little lull. There was some hope for the last two years that coup was not unexpected, but it was sudden, and it clearly, it clearly made uh, people much more hope, hopeless. Yeah, but still there is hope that it could be reversed. I'm not sure how it can work. Adversity is strong on behalf of the military. There's been a lot of betrayals from different uh, political players. Uh, There there has been some natural alliances which made people hopeless, but also hopeful that things could be reversed. 
But in any case, it's true that for many players, war has become a way of life. And that, that is much more difficult to reverse than, than many other things. That also can be reversed, but it needs a lot of confidence building and negotiations. And maybe maybe even more than that, it, it, it needs to start from the scratch and building, uh, uh, rebuilding a, a, a country and a nation. It's not easy. Players don't trust each other and they all have those guns. Now the young generation is, is really interesting and, and to look at because you can feel that ethnic boundaries are much less important for them. All those young protesters now mobilizing in Khartoum, but not only in Khartoum. In, uh, you mentioned Niela. Niela is highly mobilized. There's been protests. We don't have a lot of information because the internet is, is cut. The phone networks are cut. But we, we still have some information that people have been mobilizing in, in Niala, Darfur, the main city in Darfur and the second city in Sudan. Most of the population is actually war displaced, but they are still demonstrating in spite of the high risk. And, uh, and many have been arrested, actually. We are speaking with journalist and researcher Jerome Tubiana, who wrote the Baffler magazine article, Land of Thirst, Climate Migration, in Darfur, you write that the contradictions of Sudanese state building can be glimpsed in the careers of General Abdurrahim Mohamedou and Mahmoud Bashir Jama, the Zagawa elites who orchestrated their community's great migration. In the 1960s, as the newly independent nation began luring students into the army, Abdurrahim became the first Zagawa to enter military college and then to be promoted to the rank of officer. It was in the army that he got his first taste of Sudan's ethnic hierarchy. Most of his comrades who were from northern Sudan saw Darfurians as little better than savages. Durahim told you that the idea to move his community south had in fact come to him from an Arab, Ahmad El-Nil Dafala, then army commander of Darfur province. So was the idea of the Zagawa to flee the drought through an organized migration south and cooperating with those they encountered, was that originally an anti-Zagawa idea founded on racism? Oh no, uh, not exactly. But there was that officer, that that officer from the Nile Valley, really uh, an incarnation from the center, was challenging uh, uh, um, the fact that uh, Abderrahim's tribe, the Zawa, were 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 not poor because of their own responsibility, but but because of the uh, very much. Uh, very much degradating environmental conditions in which they were they were living. That was already man-made climate change. It's just that we didn't really know it, but it was it. And Abderrahim felt challenged. And uh, well, he and Mahmoud Bishad Jema, who who was uh, very much in in the mindset of of the Western development at the time, they they tried to find different ways to help not only their community but other Darfuris as well. It's uh, interesting because they're not very well known, also, even in Sudan itself. Also, they are at least one of them, Mahmoud, is, is quite well remembered, I think, in, in Darfur. But those were really quite interesting people and very decent elites. I mean, uh, they were in the middle of two worlds. So they knew a bit about uh, uh, traditional life. Uh, and that, that's what made them very interesting. Uh, as a child, Mahmoud had to fetch water from remote wells. Uh, before going to school. So he grew up in that environment and he was telling me uh, when I interviewed him several times before his, his death a few years ago uh, that that he believed that um, uh, his education was, was important because it's 
allowed him, he got the clues, he got the contacts, he got the connections. Sudan was an, a much more, much more smaller country in terms of elite than it is today. And he, he, he knew how to, to make his way uh, among other graduates, but he also had the connection with the land that many of uh, those other graduates didn't have anymore. Those were people responsible for planning, for development, and they 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 didn't know all what he knew about the countryside. They were not able to they were not able to to know that a drought was coming, and he was able to know that uh, he, he knew how to read the land. You know how to read the desert, how to uh, people who grew up in the desert actually know that, and we probably can learn a bit from them again uh, from indigenous communities worldwide. Uh, not only in Africa, but a bit everywhere, I believe they are important. Some of them today are visiting the COP26, and I'm not sure they are listened as much as they should be listened to. You also point out that in 1971, after a stint fighting the Anyanya uh, rebels in southern Sudan during the so-called First Civil War, Abdurrahim returned to Darfur as part of a state delegation looking into food security. The 1960s had been very dry, seeing the parched land, the idea of moving people south returned to him. In El Fasher, once the Darfur Sultanate's capital, he met Mahmoud Bashir, five years his elder, one of the first Agawa to be educated at a time when Darfur only had a handful of elementary schools. Dreaming of bringing water to his dry homeland, Mahmoud graduated as a water engineer just uh, after independence and began assisting with the construction of dams. And you quote Mahmoud saying uh, that uh, if we had actually resolved the water problem everywhere, then perhaps there would be no war in Darfur today. Do you agree? Is is water accessibility the reason for Sudan's constant civil war? And if if it is, then how avoidable was that civil war? Uh, It's not the only reasons, of course, uh, but uh, it was Mahmoud's deep conviction that it, it was crucial and he had examples uh, of, of works he had been like jams he had been able to achieve that we are actually uh, able to prevent conflict up, up to today uh, um, but then he, he had more projects including uh, of uh, you know uh, irrigated agriculture in the desert on, on the on the libyan model uh, uh, which could have been interesting in, in the case of North Darfur, definitely because it's a very desertic place. It would have prevented in that case people to move and it would have prevented conflicts due to the movement. But he, he was also, of course, organizing uh, movements and doing development in, in greener areas. And uh, the problem, it, it was clearly ill-managed. Actually, his own projects were, were uh, when uh, the government of, uh, the Islamist government of Omar al-Bashir uh, came to power, they just stopped his his projects. Maybe not because they wanted to create conflict, but they were not interested to develop Darfur definitely, and 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 any periphery. Uh, they were interested to at grabbing the resources from the peripheries to the center. That's been the Sudanese developmental model uh, almost since after colonization, with with a few exceptions. Instead of uh, uh, instead of sending resources from the center, from the wealthier center to the periphery, they were dragging resources from the peripheries to the center. So what actually provoked the war was this uh, feeling of injustice, definitely. It was political, of course. There's been a debate uh, uh, during the Darfur conflict of how much it was uh, climatic, how much it was uh, resources, including water and others, and how much it was uh, political. Of course, it was both. Uh, uh, nobody 
actually claim that climate could be a unique and, and direct cause of mass crimes. Uh, you don't kill your. It's not that the, the the weather just become a little bit hotter and you start killing your neighbors. It's more complicated than that. Uh, political causes were deeply intrinsically uh, connected with with climatic causes, and there was a problem uh, during the 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 Darfur conflict during the main because it's not over during the main the most intense part of the Darfur conflict. It was a problem where, when people, whether researchers and, and others. Where, uh, where it was difficult to say it's climatic because then you could be associated with the government's own rhetoric that everything was about uh, purely conflict between farmers and herders, traditional conflicts. It was a way for them to deny their own responsibility. And of course, they are highly responsible. They have been highly responsible. It is why President Bashir is now wanted by the International Criminal Court. But then uh, there was also, of course, a climatic cause. Uh, it, it's not, it is not, uh, which is even older, and it's not useful to deny it as well. It's both climatic and political, intrinsically linked. You quote Hassan Saleh, a Zagawa chief, who recalled the four chief of Darfur. The four chief would show you an empty place, then you'd take your axe. When we came here, there were forest and wild animals, elephants, lions, monkeys, ostriches. We cut the trees and farmed, bred cattle and, and sheep. You add, they quote-unquote open the land, as goes the Darfurian expression. In opening the land, how much more susceptible does it, does that land get to drought and again famine, where the Zagawa repeating a mistake their ancestors had made to the land that they had fled? Uh, yes and no. Definitely opening the land in the context of a population that dramatically increased had some effect in some areas. Uh, certainly uh, forests were cut uh, and uh, in some areas wood started to to, to just miss, to lack, and but also and, and wildlife disappeared uh, in, in various areas. But still, I mean, there would have been a ways where people could have moved and, and adapted and, and without necessarily having too much impact on the environment. Uh, what the war actually made things really worse because people have been concentrating, looking for safety uh, in in huge displaced camps around the main cities, and there in those areas, forests have been completely cut. So, of course, there are ways to manage the environment, even desert environment, and to some extent, uh, customary ways management of of those environments have, have proven rather efficient. Not always, but but in many cases, there are systems by which people know how to how to control. Uh, damage, uh, how to avoid that pastures uh, simply disappear forever and that woods are cut forever. So it, it does exist and could have been encouraged. It's been the case in, in other places across uh, the, the, the Sahelan belt of Africa, across desert, in desertic environment. Very often, unfortunately, it's been the opposite. But you can't input all that responsibility to, to local communities. Governments have had a tremendous responsibilities uh, a responsibility at best they didn't care but very often they actually made things much worse you write that until uh, you write that the traders in Darfur, as in South Sudan, were all from the Nile Valley north of Khartoum, as were the administrators. Indeed, the very word for trader, Jalaba, had become shorthand for anyone belonging to the Arabized tribes in northern Sudan. Abdurrahim remembers Jalaba's threat, quote, 
Those people were blind and deaf, but you came, came and taught them things. You'll have to pay for that. You had Jalaba politicians and businessmen began to paint the Zagawa as overambitious invaders, turning local non-Arabs against them. And Abderrahim tells you, we Zagawa are not wished for because we want to be equal to the Jalaba. So was the civil war, was this conflict between Arab and non-Arab, was this driven more by race or by class, or is it something else? Uh, definitely a race uh, was something important. It may not be necessarily that visible to foreigners, uh, but actually uh, Sudan uh, is a very racist country, uh, as, as others as well, but it is, it's been impacting very much um, Sudan's social fabric. And it's, it's, it's important, yes. Uh, it should be tackled if Sudan... Uh, has to, which I hope to, to go back to democratic rule. Uh, it's one of the issues that should be discussed. It's one of the, the, the national identity and, and how much it's actually not Arab, but much more diverse, how much the Sudanese identity is actually diverse should be, should be discussed uh, quietly between, between Sudanese uh, political players and, and civil society groups. It's the main issue. Well, of course, there were not one issue. There was there was there was there was not one cause of conflict in Darfur. There were many causes. Uh, one of them was was definitely politics and and the politics of race, using race uh, in order to divide and rule, as you as you said. Uh, uh, and but race and tribe, of course, we could say both been used. Uh, but then uh, and then there was of course. Uh, climate uh, and uh, the fact that people had to move and, and to concentrate in, in smaller areas. And, uh, a bigger number of, of people were actually had to live together and sometimes succeeded for a while, but then often failed. Uh, and that's where politics came into the fore because it's often because of those politics. And the example you mentioned was clear enough. Uh, people in the center wanting to stay in power at all costs uh, would prefer local people in the peripheries to fight over their small, uh, 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 their smaller and smaller resources than to fight for the power in the center, than to fight for a, a, a more just fair share of power in the center. It's exactly what happened. There was a lot of manipulation. And it's still happening today, you know, like today in Sudan. Some uh, Darfur rebels have, are making calculations that they could support some military players, some from Darfur or from other places, if they actually want to get their share of the power. And uh, others believe it would be better to just support democracy and then take the risk of supporting it and see what happens. So there are different strategies and and. Some of them are a little bit more complicated and, and maybe more unethical than others. You write that as a, mil a military Islamist coup brought Omar al-Bashir to power, this is in the late 80s, the first major conflict pitted all the main nomadic Arab tribes of Darfur against four farmers. It was spurred by increasing scarcity of resources, which had been exacerbated by the quote-unquote Reagan 
famine, so remembered after the food aid the U.S. president had belatedly sent across. So what sparked the Civil War more, the coup or the Reagan famine? How significant was Reagan's role in fueling the Sudanese Civil War in Darfur relative to al-Bashir's? Ah, no, Reagan, Reagan's food aid just came too late. There was also a huge um, responsibility of the government uh, uh, in, of successive Sudanese governments, uh, one of them uh, before Bashir, but also a military government, uh, not Islamist, but befriending the Islamists already in the early ni- 1980s, that was Jaffa Nimeri's government, was actually in sh- sheer denial of the of the problem, of, of the climatic and, and drought and, and famine problem. That, of course, didn't help. Uh, well, all successive governments of Sudan, including the uh, uh, short-lived democratic governments, had a responsibility in neglecting Darfur, definitely. But uh, but the Bashir's government responsibility was certainly uh, higher because it actually chose to to. It somehow needed the war. Uh, uh, it was it was a military government. And, and the military in that government uh, somehow benefited from the war in, in various ways. It allowed them to stay in power, but also to make money. Uh, because, And it's one of the main problems currently in Sudan. It's that the, the military don't want to surrender to the civilian government. I mean, the civilian government until a few days ago was just trying to get the military to surrender the huge economic assets that they control. The, the, the civilian prime minister who was toppled a few days ago uh, stated that 80% of the Sudanese economy was actually escaping the civilian government. It means that according to him, those were controlled by military players. So then how to, the, the, the very, his very attempt to recuperate that actually one of the was one of the reasons for the coup and it was also one of the reasons the Bashir regime was actually quite satisfied with wars even if they actually provoked uh, an economic crisis uh, in addition to uh, human tragedy do you see any sign of arab non-arab hatred and division uh, declining or decreasing in any way um it's really difficult to say now, I would say, uh, but I see multiple divides increasing. Uh, I don't know which one will prevail. Uh, today, the main divide since that coup, and maybe since a few weeks at least, has been the divide between the civilian and the military, but it's also overshadowing a lot of other divides. Uh, those, are, those include divides between Arabs and non-Arabs, which have been and could still be very damaging. Uh, But those also include divides uh, within, between the center and the peripheries, of course, uh, which are maybe more crucial in a way, but could be damaging too. And of course, there are divides, uh, very stupid divides between civilian politicians, actually, because they should be avoided. But of course, there are also divides within the military. Those some people would say that those can be very dangerous because they can trigger violence. I would say that, yeah, but maybe more cynically, those could be quite positive. Uh, 
because we see that when the military is united, there is a coup. And if the military is divided, including between uh, the regular army and, and the paramilitaries, or between uh, the officers and the soldiers, that could actually compel those players uh, to relinquish power to a civilian government, which is what I think a lot of people are, a lot of Sudanese people are hoping at least. And you write it is probably a mistake to believe that men on the move do not have any homeland. The Saharan nomads I met spoke with nostalgia of oases and springs or mountains where their ancestors once lived. Their heirs may have never seen these territories that colonial boundaries made parts of other states, yet they remain mystically tied to them. Is Darfur and Sudan seeing a return to a nomadism that predates even British colonial rule? Somehow, yes, but it's um, it's forced nomadism of uh, people who live in displaced camps, and those displaced camps became new towns. This is why Niela uh, is now the second town of Sudan. It, its population grew up from, from a few hundred thousand to more than a million today. It's made of displaced people, and they can't really... Well, they can't really return to their homeland. They are certainly... Uh, very much uh, 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 tied, uh, intimately tied to that homeland, wherever it is in, in within Darfur. They can't return because it's dangerous. Militias would attack them, and when they return, even just to farm during the rainy season, they're very often attacked. It happened a lot in the latest rainy season, although it was uh, during uh, before the coup, uh, while Darfur was still living supposedly under democratic rule. But still, people were attacked, killed, women were raped. And uh, also, they, many of them, especially um, young ones, children, uh, elders, uh, women, they are happy to stay in the camps because it gives them access to services, which they don't have, unfortunately, uh, in their rural homeland and will maybe not have before a while. Those are hospitals, health, uh, and of course, schools education. So this is why I expect people to be moving partially or, or completely between uh, rural areas where they can farm in the rainy season and, and those new towns where they can get access to those services. It will be a new kind of nomadism. Then what is really nomadism? I mean, I'm not sure. There are many definitions and, and, and well, there's been in the literatures, there have been very opposed views on nomadism. Even, even in the Middle Age Arab literature, nomads are often depicted as, uh, as worthless, uncontrollable people that should be put under control of, of by by sedentary rulers, and it is still very much in the mindset of of uh, rulers across uh, Africa and the Arab world that they should be sedentarized and and controlled. Uh, um, and 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 even nomads themselves in Sudan, many of them would believe that actually, that their people should be disciplined. And other people, I don't know, I'm thinking to writer Bruce Chatwin, whom I like very much, were actually idealizing nomads in the other direction. They were seeing them as as an incarnation of of uh, what humanity used to be, uh, uh, idealized humanity of people who could move and and adapt to. A changing environment and actually what's interesting with climate change some, somehow is it's inviting us to 
uh, rethink that way and to believe that, yeah, maybe human beings have long been nomads and, and maybe nomadism is the best way to adapt to a dangerously changing environment, which also invite us in the global north to maybe think of how we could actually take into account and welcome some climate migrants for for the best uh, for the best of, of themselves and for us as well. Uh, meaning that, uh, you know, I believe most climate migrants in the past, actually, they were unnoticed. They were just labeled either political refugees or economic migrants, even though there was a climate uh, cause in their movement. Even during the big droughts in, in the Sahel, many people actually migrated to uh, Libya or to uh, the, the Gulf countries, and they are still there. Their communities almost invisible, but uh, I believe most people do act did actually in during past climate events and and still in for in future climate events they will migrate within their their boundaries within their borders because they are as we mentioned very much tied to their homeland, but still a minority of them like happened to Darfuri people in during that war during the war since two thousand three will cross borders and it will be important to actually welcome them because for different reasons, but there is one which is crucial because the once we welcome them, they will actually be the ones uh, from the diaspora to be able to improve life in their countries more than development programs dictated from the West, more than uh, even the best uh, humanitarian NGOs will be able to do. I believe that dias diasporas have already proven very crucial in, in political and economic change in their own countries when they are abroad and when they return. Well, actually, you could think it's also one of the reasons why it may be important to welcome some Afghan refugees who would then, uh, in exile, uh, uh, maybe uh, fight as much as they can the Taliban regime and maybe in a few decades bring back democracy to their country. We have been speaking with journalist and researcher Jerome Tubiana, who wrote the Baffler magazine article, Land of Thirst, Climate Migration in Darfur. Jerome, I have one more question for you. Uh, Jerome is also the author of the graphic novel Guantanamo Kid, the true story of Muhammad Al-Gharani. And I just wanted to mention that because that book looks absolutely fascinating for people who are graphic novel fans, for people who are interested in the war on terror, for people who are interested in the story of Muhammad Al-Gharani, somebody who was... Uh, imprisoned in Guantanamo unjustly. It looks really fantastic, Jerome. Uh, one last question for you, and as we do with all of our guests, I promise our final question is the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience will hate your response. You write, as far back as the 14th century, Arab geographer Ibn Khaldun uh, pastoralists have been seen by outsiders as more prone to conflict than settled people. From Mauritania to Yemen, I have heard uh, nomadism, much like migration to the north, described as a threat to security by Western politicians. In Darfur, as elsewhere, nomads have themselves spoken to me for their desire to settle. This would end, their reasoning goes, the need for guns to protect wandering herds and allow their children to get an education. So to what degree, Jerome, does nomadism lead to war? Is nomadism simply incompatible with the idea of states and borders to end war? Do we have to end either nomadism or borders? Uh, yeah, I think we should rather end borders 
or make them very open. There are different kinds of models for borders, of course. And uh, yeah, in Africa and other places as well, you know, more open borders, not just um, not just a, a line on a map would be, I think, much more peace, much more peaceful. Borders have also created so many conflicts, probably more than nomads. And uh, thanks for much mentioning uh, Gantamo Kid and it, the graphic novel. And it just just came to my mind that it's actually also the story of a climate migrant. Uh, the hero of the of the novel is actually a, a young kid who grew up in Saudi Arabia but from a Chadian uh, origin. And his family uh, left the Chadian desert uh, decades ago, precisely because they were uh, fleeing drought and climate change. Jerome, thank you so much for being on our show. This is a fascinating article. And if people want to have a better understanding of what's happening in Sudan right now with the military coup and what's been happening in Sudan since the 14th century, please go read Jerome's article because it really is fascinating. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thanks for inviting. All right. Take care. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove me wrong. This is hell if what you just heard from Jerome Tubiana on climate migration in Darfur. If that made you angry, sad, anxious, or you were in some way enlightened, deprogramming yourself from a previously held belief or understanding or made you feel like you actually learned something or realized that, yes, this really is hell. Show your support by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell or go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks for your support. Jess, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is, in this house, we believe what? God, do you hate those signs too? Yeah, no, they're awful. Oh, uh, they're <laughs> awful. I, the one I hate, the, I think the line I hate the most in it is where they say, we believe in science. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a big field. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Alex has it up. Um, on the post. <laughs> no, does he? Is that the image he has with it? Mm-hmm. Oh, sweet. Um, yes, in this house, we believe what? Um, we only have two responses today. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, well, it's a late post. Yeah. Um, Fabio L. says, in this house, we believe the rent is too damn high. <laughs> That's a good one. And Warren L. says, in this house, we never doubt the stupidity of humans in large groups. <laughs> That's very nice. I'd like to see those on a front lawn. We'll have more of your answers at the end of tomorrow's show. Again, the question from Elle is, in this house, we believe what? In this house, we believe what? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise they want that is currently available at thisishell.com. When they click on support, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to either of us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, this week in rotten history, November 10th, 1898. 123 years ago this Wednesday, a democratically elected city government was violently overthrown in North Carolina. Let's see. North Carolina, 1898. Violent overthrow of a government. I'm going to guess that the overthrow of democracy had to do with racism. Yeah. 
Let's see what happens. In the 30-plus years since the end of the Civil War, newly freed African Americans had moved into skilled trade and professions and had taken on significant roles in government across North Carolina, and I was correct. In Wilmington, then the state's largest city, black people made up the majority of the population of some 10 to 12,000. Though they still faced discrimination, they nonetheless served as judges and police and played important roles in a city government dominated by the same Republican Party that had pushed for post-war reconstruction throughout the South. Meanwhile, a sizable minority of white former Confederates bitterly resented what they saw as black people stealing their jobs, forcing them to pay higher taxes, and generally taking over society. And seeing as how African Americans were the majority, the former Confederates chose racism over democracy, as they had when they were current Confederates. They formed armed militias, including a group of terrorist thugs known as the Red Shirts, always giving Red a bad name, who rode around on horses to threaten and violently intimidate black people as well as any sympathetic whites. As the 1898 statewide election approached, Democratic politicians made speeches in which they openly urged white people to kill black voters and assured their audiences that they would win the election either by ballots or by bullets, which sounds like what you would expect from the late 19th century Democratic Party in the South. And two days earlier in rotten history, on Election Day, on the 8th of November, 123 years ago, today, and widespread, amid widespread voter intimidation and charges of voter fraud, the Democrats did win a narrow victory over a coalition of progressive populists and Republicans. But in Wilmington, the biracial city government remained in office because it would not be up for election until the following year. And so two days after the statewide election, the so-called red shirts and other ex-Confederates mounted a violent attack on black citizens and black owned businesses across Wilmington. Estimates of the number of dead run from 60 up to 300. At the paper, the William Daily Record, the only black-owned daily newspaper in the United States, the red shirts burned down the building and proudly posed for a group photo in front of the smoking ruins, which is a frightening reminder of whites having their pictures taken proudly in front of the victim of a lynching. Then they and other racist thugs converged on City Hall, where at gunpoint they forced the mayor, the city council, and the police chief all to resign. Mob leader Alfred Moore Waddell. They always have three names. Mob leader Alfred Moore Waddell was quickly declared the new mayor, and in the weeks that followed, his legitimacy in office was never questioned by any state or federal authority. Thus, the Wilmington event is acknowledged by historians as the only successful coup d'etat in U.S. history. Both in Wilmington, across North Carolina, the newly installed racist leaders rapidly accelerated the disenfranchisement of African Americans and passed a succession of laws that helped solidify the repressive racist policies of the Jim Crow era. So I guess they will not be teaching this history lesson in Virginia anytime soon. In case you missed it, and I really, really hope you did, CNN is doing everything it can to convince their audience that being woke, a term only used by old people who struggle with the concept of abolition, being woke is bad, well, for anyone. But particularly, the Democratic Party is white, allegedly independent suburban women who voted for Joe Biden for president voted Republican in Virginia's gubernatorial election. Yes, it's all your fault, people demanding equality and an accurate depiction and retelling of the history of the United States. 
Now let's get back to ignoring institutional racism and the myth of American exceptionalism so Democrats can be more like Republicans and win elections. That's quite a message you're sending, CNN. Now that's rotten history and rotten today. And this is Hell Jess. Who do we have scheduled to be on tomorrow's Tuesday's show? Tomorrow we'll be speaking with Ajay Singh Chowdhury on his Baffler article, The Extractive Circuit, An Exhausted Planet at the End of Growth. Ajay was on our show back in uh, June, I believe, to discuss another article he wrote for the Baffler. Boy, we're all baffling this week, aren't we? Uh, That article was titled, We're Not in This Together. There is no politics of, uh, no universal politics of climate change. Just do we know who is going to be on Wednesday's show at 10 a.m. here at thisishell.com? We do not know yet, but it'll surely be somebody. That's good to know. And we will have Jeff Dorchin delivering another moment of truth. We are still looking for new board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell. If you're interested in running the board, as Jess and Richard and Alex do, email me at chuck at com. if you'd like to join us here on This Is Hell. We are looking for people who can run the board anywhere from once a week here at our studio above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood, a show that begins at 10 a.m. Monday through Wednesday, and then a Patreon podcast on Friday. However, we're very flexible, and if you can only do it a couple times a month, we can work within your schedule. This is your opportunity to have access to a professional studio for your own projects as well. So you could do your own podcast if you wanted to. And we actually pay our board ops a living wage. I know. Go figure. If you are interested in becoming a board operator here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. Chuck at thisishell.com. Thanks to our guest today, journalist and researcher Jerome Tubiana, who wrote the Baffler Magazine article, Land of Thirst, Climate Migration in Darfur. Thanks to Jess Lipka for running the board. Thanks to Alex Jerry for producing. And thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History. And this week's Hangover Cure is... In the Bible, and it's amethyst, I guess. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.